The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit. Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. Trigger warning for discussions of sex trafficking and drug abuse. Man, I've been thinking about space a lot. Outer space. I saw a TikTok the other day where this woman said that it's water and we're living in water, but space is... And you know what? I guess it's like a form of water. She said outer space was water? Yeah, outer space is water. And then she's like, you got to watch my other TikToks for it to make sense. And I was like, baby, it's still crazy. (laughs) Was she a scientist? No. Oh, she's just a crazy person. She's just a Ah, person on the internet. I was like, I've never heard that theory before. (laughs) Um, Great. Yeah, we. I don't think we're uh, in a universe of water by any science standards, but I do love. Sometimes I go into these super long, deep space exploration obsessions where I just really love learning about like, you know, intergalactic stuff and Black how holes. the universe and like the string theory stuff. And I get really obviously the show is is a reference to space, mm-hmm. the title, but um, I don't know I. It like for some reason it like calms me down in a weird way, and I know the idea of outer space can really freak some people out, but I feel excitement by it because you're just like a speck of nothing, and you're like, yeah. oh, my problems don't they don't matter. Yeah, I shit my pants the other day, but you know, black holes exist. Exactly, I think that is really what it is. Like when I hear somebody talk about how they don't believe in science because of the Will Smith movie I Am Legend. Wait, they don't what? Who says this? It was a person who said they can't take the vaccine because they said the Will Smith movie, I Am Legend, is all the monsters in it were from a vaccine, which is not the plot of I Am Legend. And also it's a movie. Yeah, they're just they're zombies. They're not. So whenever (sighs) that happens, sometimes I go and look at pictures that the Hubble telescope has taken and I smile and I smile. There's like one that I have that has about 10,000 galaxies that was like a composite that they made from images from the Hubble telescope. And also, I mean, beyond it looking amazing and really cool and and just like so exciting, you just like think about, I like to think about how deep we don't understand the numbers, the sheer scope of space and, and how I like to just think about it until I'm like my eyes cross. Yeah, there could be like a whole nother world out there that's topsy-turvy of us. You know, maybe two women are hosting a podcast on found women. Yeah, I mean, that is string theory. And also, just in the last couple decades, science has, based on the information we have in front of us, they've found like thousands of exoplanets that are Earth-like in our own galaxy. And they think that there's upwards of six billion or more Earth-like planets just in the Milky Way. We just what? can't reach them yet. We're really far away from them. But just in our own galaxy, there are the potential for conscious life on over six billion planets. And also, we're just one tiny galaxy in a sea of galaxies that also probably have billions of planets on them. So I'm just saying. Yeah, you're stoked, Natalie. I know. There's like no way that there's not alien life. There's just no way. Oh, yeah. We've seen them on video. We just don't care. <laughs> I know. It's just like. We don't give a this, shit. This was the era whenever they brought this out to the public. They trotted it out because they knew people wouldn't give a shit because everything else is so bad. They're just like, 
great cool i don't give a shit about that dude how about we you know fucking worry about the ocean or the crazy people running our government or all the people dying from a curable illness sorry all right here we are welcome to someplace underneath guys hi hi um i'm sorry i just went insane for a couple minutes there no it's okay we were straight up talking for like an hour setting up i was talking about my love life yeah he's listening to me thank you of course i you know we had a quote-unquote week off which we really i there wasn't really a week off but i spent a lot of it just filled with rage so uh same i've been in a mood yeah let's, let's get it out <laughs> let's get it out on the show just remember that no matter how dumb uh some people are they're not as dumb as me there's a bunch <sighs> of other cool if we can make it through this time period we might be able to find some really amazing shit in space someday and you should go totally look up hubble telescope photos and just have your mind blown over and over again. I love it. You know what else blew my mind? That Ohio touches Canada. I thought it was in the middle of America. Ah, uh, see, I knew it didn't because I'm from Pennsylvania, but I could totally, it makes sense that Ohio would just be in the sea of those other states. I thought it was like right people. by Nebraska or something. Nope. Yeah. And it is technically touching mostly water, so it seems like it's not touching Canada, but yeah. Um, Ohio, Ohio, everyone. <laughs> I had no idea about this state. I thought Ohio was like casseroles and how y'all doing? You know what I mean? I thought it was like just some good old, like a like a southern state up north or in the middle. Yeah, in, in many ways it is in both good and bad terms, yeah. I will say. As I said, I've grown up in, in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, throughout my childhood, my teen years, my high school years. I lived in Pittsburgh, which is very close to Ohio. So I feel like where I grew up is not super different from a lot of Ohio. Uh, today, we're going to be specifically talking about a section of Ohio that has a very high, alarmingly high rate of missing and murdered women. Yeah. Yeah. And human trafficking is huge in Ohio. Yeah. Well, unsurprisingly, those two things are connected. They go hand in hand. <laughs> they really do. Peas and carrots. Yep. Peas and carrots are Kim Jong-un and Dennis Rodman. I know. There's so many towns in America that I can't go driving through. You know, I was going to go drive to see my mom in Mississippi. I forget how big America is. I was going to go drive to see my mom in Mississippi from California. And I was like, that'll take like a day. <laughs> <laughs> someday it will. Whenever we get high speed trains, someday it will take a couple hours. But no, for now it takes... You know, which is still a miracle of, of modern technology that it only takes, you know, five days to get there. It used to take multiple people's lives to just like, they would just die on the way. Yeah, you know? in my horse and drawn carriage. Yep. You'd probably be taken as somebody's wife against your will. Just and ravaged. Just ravaged in the mountains. All right. Now you're making it. Now you're making it a sexy fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So what we're, we've been saying, basically, is at first glance, it may not be entirely clear why this little section of mid-southern Ohio has such a high rate of the missing and murdered women. Um, Columbus, Ohio, which is right in the center of the state, and the towns directly south of it make up an area known by some as the 23 Pipeline. Columbus is pretty much a square in the middle of Ohio, and it's pretty much a straight shot south to the town of Portsmouth. And it's a two-hour drive, which Portsmouth is the, on the border of Ohio and Kentucky. So, so basically what we're looking at, Ohio looks sort of like the Wu-Tang symbol to me. You know, so we're talking right in the middle of that symbol. And then you go straight down to in between the two bottom points of the W. And then you get. Yeah. And that's like um, holler country mountains. It is. It's really smashed. Um, Portsmouth is to me. <laughs> do you ever see this is a deep cut. Do you ever see Sleeping Beauty like the Disney one, the old fashioned Disney Sleeping Beauty? Oh, the cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. You know the fairies how they're fighting over the color of the dress and they're both shooting their wands the 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 dress and oh, blue yeah. pink blue pink and then at one point they both hit it and it explodes and it's all mashed together. Portsmouth to me looks like Columbus like the urban stretch of Columbus and the Appalachian forest and mountains kind of like smashed into each other because it's sort of half mountainous half you know urban. Yeah. And it it looks like they're battling each other there. 
So you can just take a woman from the city and then just go drag her out in the mountains. That too, but oddly enough, it's really not so much as people going into the forest. It's the other direction, going towards the city, and we'll find out why. Mm. So on my uh, my notes here, Amber, you can see too, I have a photo of a woman. It's the back of her shirt, and she's at a vigil. And on the back of her shirt, there's a, the name of 11 women with dates on the back. I see. Yes. Of these 11 names, these are all m- women who at the time of this photo were missing. Some of them have been found, although none alive, unfortunately. These dates on this woman's shirt range from April of 2013 to June of 2015. That's a couple years of killing. Yeah. And just as with the Highway of Tears, these aren't start and end dates. And this is not a full list of women missing from these communities. Wendy's here with us today and she keeps barking. And then we have to keep stopping and starting. It's not fun, everyone. She's a little sweetheart, though. She is the cutest. It's a good thing she's cute because she keeps barking. But that's how she survives. Uh, So (laughs) there are going to be a lot of similarities we'll see with this story and the Highway of Tears. And there will be some things that are very uniquely American about this. Oh, like they were killed with hamburgers? (laughs) I mean, not not that far off. Yeah, so there are a lot of similarities to these stories, and then you know we'll see some some differences. Uh, so we're going to start off with in that in 2013, in this little section, this part of Ohio, Megan Lancaster went missing on April 3rd, 2013. She was 25 and a mother. She's often pointed to as the first in this group, though that's certainly not true. Beyond the 11 names mentioned on that shirt, there have been an extraordinary number of young women found dead and were found with signs of distress. People were freaking out. What is this? Is this about a serial killer? Uh, Why is this, you know, this amount of people going missing and dying here? Yeah, just this random little spot. Mm -hmm. Portsmouth, which is where Megan Lancaster lived, is located right, again, at the Kentucky border in southern Ohio. It is a town we'll talk about that has had better times, has seen better days. Oh, let me guess. They used to be thriving, and then some corporation was like, we'll make more money if we ship the product overseas, the jobs overseas, and then people went poor and bankrupt, and they shipped drugs in the community, and then people started doing the drugs, and then prostitution came, and then crime rose. I'm just going to fucking guess. I'm sorry. Well, that's it. We did the whole episode. Okay, now. that's it. That episode. was pretty accurate. Uh, <laughs> that's it, everyone. Get the fuck out of here. Um, yeah, no, it's it's pretty much the, the story of the middle America in general. Yeah, and people are like, I don't get it. Why is crime on the rise? I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe because people don't have jobs. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it is, is from corporate greed. Mm-hmm. So, but then you they convince you to be mad at other poor people instead. And yeah. Yeah. It's always like some other group's fault. Yes. Never the people living in the mansions. It's never their fault. No, 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 no. So there are over 35, currently over 35% of people in Portsmouth live in poverty. There are high rates of people with disabilities and have no health insurance. Portsmouth is, it's pretty small. Uh, It sits on Highway 23, which is where the 23 pipeline term comes from, amidst the edges of the Wayne National Forest. And like I said, it's sort of stuck between full urban life of Columbus north of it, and the desolation of Appalachia in the south. Both sides creep kind of into this town, which statistically is not what we would call thriving right now. Mm. Just more of an older community? It's young, actually. Young? Yeah, but it's not doing great. So Megan Lancaster grew up there. According to her family, she was friendly and loving. Her sister-in-law, Katie Lancaster, calls Megan her best friend to this day, even though she's been missing since 2013. And Katie has been a driving force in keeping her name in people's mouths and is clearly still deeply affected by her missing status. Her family definitely is a, it's a case of her family caring quite a bit, regardless of how her case has tr- been treated in yeah, by law enforcement. So like many, many people we discuss, Megan grew up with limited means. She was also sexually abused as a child in the 90s. 
like many, many people, without access to treatment or really any kind of protection or healing, she turned to the overwhelmingly available drugs in her town for relief from the pain. Yeah, that's usually pretty much what happens because mm-hmm. people think therapy is a four-letter word. I yeah. know women, a woman who is sexually abused since childhood, and uh, she's an alcoholic now, and yeah. people are like, I don't know why she's drinking. Yeah. I don't know, maybe because her dad raped her? Like, yeah. they don't they don't see that. Right. It's just like, you should just get over it because that's the past. Right, for sure. <laughs> And, you know, that that is definitely a mentality that still sweeps through a lot of our, our world. And sadly, you know, when our parents were young, they openly said that. Now they kind of say it a little bit more like, why doesn't she just get over it? They used to say, you know, m- when women were in the office, it was just like, ah, you know, he just they sometimes just pinch your butt. That's just how it goes. I guess my body's just property. And yeah. poor women. Oh, my God. Women from poor backgrounds are just killed raped, abused. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. And even if maybe some of those people in in Portsmouth today want therapy, there's not always resources for that. There's not money. There's not doctors down there. So they cope with it how they cope with it. And so we'll get back to that in a minute. In her senior year of high school, Megan became pregnant and she had her son. People who knew her all said that she was in love with the baby and was so thrilled at the chance to be a mom. Unfortunately, drugs had already taken their grip on her. And as she suffered through addiction, she did what many people around her were doing. She turned to prostitution. I use the term prostitution specifically not to diminish her or anyone else, but to acknowledge that while I personally think it's good to support sex work by people who choose to and feel empowered by it. Many women are soliciting sex through coercion and sometimes direct force. Yeah. And many of those women are impoverished or black. Many native women are going through that. And we have to look at the insidious side of sex work through that lens. Yeah. Oftentimes, like somebody will grow up in a broken home and then someone else will approach you. And I hear that this is how they start the conversation. Oh, you have nice hair. And if you say thank you and move on, then they know they won't go after you. But if you say something like, oh, I don't know, it could be a little redder, then they know that you have like a self-esteem issues. They start targeting you and they'll like take you to nail salons. Mm-hmm. They'll take you to Applebee's. And then you start getting chummy with them and feeling like they're a parental figure. And then they'll start saying, you owe me. I mean, that is, I don't know if you ended up watching any of the documentary Gone. Amber, but that is directly one of the women's yeah. like mothers telling the story in that in that way, and I think that's true in a, in a lot of ways. I, I know when I was younger, even though I wasn't trafficked, I would lean into maybe very bad guys who would kind of lead me down that path through those kind of words, and then kind of then become really possessive and crazy. And yeah, it's a scary um, world out there. It is, especially when you're not giving any sort of tools to protect yourself, you know? So when I say prostitution, please know that it's not because I um, I, I support sex workers. Oh, yeah. But we also need to have the conversation about sometimes sex workers are not doing it of their own volition and are doing it out of... Uh, Manipulation? Yeah. And it's not, it's not okay. They're scared and a lot of them end up getting trafficked. So again, we'll go back to that. In April of 2013... Megan's white Ford Mustang was found parked outside of a rallies in Portsmouth with her wallet on the front seat. According to her sister-in-law, the car, which had sat in the parking lot for two days before anyone was alerted to it, was found parked haphazardly with one wheel up on the curb and the door wide open. Megan's parents had the car towed to a lot where it sat untouched by the police for six months. There was little evidence taken during Megan's case. So little, in fact, that they didn't even search her apartment. What? It was primarily left up to Katie, her sister-in-law, to investigate it. So she went through Megan's apartment. It just sounds like everybody's, like, depressed. And they're just like, I don't know. You deal with it. I mean, they didn't even look through her car for six months. Oh, my God. So there's... (laughs) Sometimes I will, like, leave my house and, like, my vibrator be in the middle of my bed. And I'm like, if I turned up dead... And like they had to go check my apartment. I was like, would I be embarrassed? <laughs> I yeah, I feel you, but also fuck that. No. No. Be, <laughs> be let your you dead are. body be shown as a sexual being, okay? <laughs> so um <laughs> sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. 
Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Yeah, there there were several documentaries made about this problem, this, this horrible conundrum down here. And... It's really easy to sort of uh, dismiss the police and call them trash. And I get it because some of them definitely are. But I don't really know what the cause of their not paying attention to it. I do. I'm sure that those police officers have to deal with a nightmare situation every single day because of the drug problems that they have. But they also very I've I've watched them be interviewed and there is a sort of detached, passive, aggressive, almost like condescending, well, it's those kind of girls in their voice. They're junkies, you know, what how are we even supposed to know if they're missing or not? Wrong side of the tracks kind of gal. They've done this, you know, what did they expect was gonna happen kind of mentality. And this is what happened with Megan. She had, you know, been known to be using and even though she kept in touch with her family and her family insisted that this was not normal for her, they were just sort of like, okay. And so they were like, ah, she'll turn up or whatever. And then six months in, they finally were like, maybe we'll look through her car now. So Katie knew something was wrong right away. She and Megan were close. That was one of her best friends. And Katie, even though Katie wasn't necessarily in in the throes of the same struggles, they were close and she, they Megan was a human being with problems, but she was also a person. She wasn't just this like zombie that walked around on the yeah, streets. Drug you know? users are still people, too. Yeah. And a lot of them are good people. Yeah. Let's focus on why they're using the drugs first. And I know that's not the cop's job, but the fact that this is how they've been treating these cases is why now there's a crisis. Yeah. It's just a depression. And like, I'm looking at a picture of the town. It's gray. Yeah. This picture that you're looking at right now, this is directly across the street from the rallies where her car was found. So this is what we're facing here. It's depressing. It's depressing to look at. I feel like a, huh. Yeah. You know, when I look at this picture. Yeah. Uh, So... Also, I I do question whether or not the police force there was employed with people who were equipped to handle this kind of crime, because I think a lot of it was mostly they were maybe more equipped to handle like theft and other more basic things. Drug use, not like serial killers. Right. Crime, you know, missing women, murdered women. I don't know if, if their local force was really equipped for that. Yes. So instead of the police doing it, Megan's sister in law, Katie went through Megan's apartment after she disappeared. And Katie found a collection of about 100 loose pages of notes. Katie doesn't know exactly why Megan was leaving these detailed messages, but they seem to have all been created towards the last couple months before she disappeared. Some of these pages held phone directories of people who would be connected to the drug trade, dealers, users, and also prostitution clients. They, these things weren't scribbled down haphazardly. They were carefully laid out, labeled and color-coded. You can get this guy over here for this. It's yeah. just like leading cops to the thing. But it it was bizarre because it wasn't, it wasn't done in a way... It was done with coding. It, it was done that... Was it a way where she hadn't made it a system for herself to understand something? And she was leaving little notes near some people's names. And it was... We'll find out a little bit later. There were some interesting people's names in that notebook. Oh, like high up people? Yeah. Like judges, lawyers. Yeah. Police. Yep. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, So 
The cops didn't even, if they would have searched at least for a second, they probably would have found that and confiscated it, but they didn't. So Katie took it and she organized it all and put it in a binder. It's um, almost good they didn't find it. Oh, they yeah. Would have been, like, they oh, would it's have way better. It away. It's way better. Very quickly, her case went cold. It, I, I mean, calling it cold doesn't really make sense because it would have had to have been hot at one point, but pretty much they kind of just dismissed the case really quickly. And then a year went by. In April of 2014, a 22-year-old woman named Jamie Bowen left her sister's house in Columbus, Ohio, saying she was walking over to their nearby parents' house to borrow cigarettes in the late morning. Jamie had taken her sister's phone on the walk, and her sister, whose name is Kay, had called the mom's house after Jamie had left a little while just to like check to see what if Jamie made it and she was all right and everything, because she had Kay's phone. And the mother said, oh, Jamie isn't here. She never came here. I didn't know she was coming. So panicked, Kay started calling the cell phone from her house. And she kept calling and calling and calling. And it would ring and ring and ring. And then eventually one time the phone was just off. Their family started into a panic immediately, of course. Uh, they never saw her again what? after that. So just a walk from like one house to another. In the middle of the day. Yeah. And it's it was about, it's a 10 minute walk, they said, between the two houses. So easy. I've done so many stupid things. Oh, yeah. 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 And this was like, this was not doing a stupid thing. No, this is in the middle of the day. Yeah. I went on a date with a guy who drove me by like uh, sheds on the water. And he was like, you ready to come into my apartment? <laughs> and I was like, sure I am, baby. <laughs> We've all gone into a shed on the water one time or another. So like Megan, Jamie's family felt alone in the, their pursuit of their daughter. Uh, they, of course, got the police involved very quickly, but the police weren't particularly interested. So like Megan, Jamie leaves behind children. In the series Gone, The Forgotten Women of Ohio, documentarian Joe Berlinger speaks with Jamie's little boys, and it's very, very sad. They are they were really little in 2014 when she disappeared, and now they're still very little to this day, and they're 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 very heartbroken. The family's heartbroken. This is yeah. again not just some you know random uh messed up you know junky girl. She has a family. She had kids and she might have been struggling but she was still a person yeah this is generational trauma because those boys are going to grow up and they're going to raise kids and how are they going to raise kids if they if their mother got got you well know? apparently according to this documentary one of the kids already was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress syndrome which in a way is good because that at least means they're getting some form of therapy but the family is confused about the lack of concern by the police and society as a whole uh, so just like Megan, Jamie was suffering from the same addiction. And you could might think like, oh, wait, you just said Columbus and the first one was Portsmouth. So those are two different places. To go between Columbus and Portsmouth is about a two-hour drive, 100 miles on the highway. So at first glance, those women might not have had much to do with each other. And at first, nobody did connect those two people together. The same goes for Charlotte Trago who disappeared from Chillicothe, Ohio. And that town is right between Columbus and Portsmouth on the 23 pipeline. Just a month after Jamie, actually, in May of 2014. Even though Charlotte was also caught in this net of addiction, she was also a mother. And Charlotte's mom said that she would always check in, regardless of the pain she may have been causing herself and her family, she was still involved with her family and always involved with her child. So I think it's important not to sugarcoat these stories, but to instead see these women as complex people with pain and hope and families who were working to get them out of the places they had found themselves, whether yeah. or not they had all the resources they may have needed. Yeah, they're poor. So they do drugs and we're just like, oh, those poor drug addicts. But how many wealthy women are on like Vicodin? Yeah, for, you oh, know, absolutely. Just popping pills all day. And like, that's fine. Yeah, it's, it's really, I, I do really want to stress that it's not about calling these missing women, oh, they're perfect angels. They're people. And they were 
in pain and they were struggling, but it doesn't mean that they weren't trying to fix things. That doesn't mean they didn't care about their children. That doesn't mean they didn't have people who loved them. Yeah. They just didn't know how to get out of the grips of this. And this sad town. Mm-hmm. So in Chillicothe, Charlotte was not alone in her sudden disappearance. So now we're looking at three separate women, three separate towns, but they're all on the same little stretch of the highway. Does it sound like Highway of Tears a little bit? A little bit. The same month, just a couple weeks after Charlotte goes missing, a woman named Tamika Lynch's family was also in a panic, not being able to locate her. Tragically, Tamika, a beautiful 30-year-old mother, was found deceased shortly thereafter in a creek relatively near her home in Chillicothe. It turns out that Charlotte and Tamika knew each other and both had struggled with addiction. So because they knew each other and because these cases started started to pile up, people were starting to get up in arms. They were questioning what was going on. It didn't seem like it could be simply a coincidence. But also the families weren't being taken very seriously. Mm. Even though Tamika's body was nude when they found her on the side of a creek uh, and showed signs of distress, her death was deemed an accidental overdose. What? Even if subconsciously, like I said, or through these microaggressions, you can kind of hear it in the voices of these police when they're being interviewed. Even if they have to deal with these horrific conditions on a regular basis, it could be empathy burnout, but you can definitely hear that in their voices where, they're, where they kind of are going, what did you think when you're going to go out dressed like that? Like that mentality. Yeah, they just, they're over it, but it's a human life. Yeah. Um, so they, they, don't, they don't look at these women as the same as they would a woman who wasn't taking drugs, you know, or who wasn't poor. And some of the mothers of these girls have gone so far as to say the police have said that directly to their faces. Rude. Like saying, oh, well, she's one of those kind of girls. So, yeah, I mean, what the fuck, There's man? There's no need for all that. No. What are you doing, dude? They're acting as though these women set out thinking, oh, I know, I'll get addicted to heroin and live happily ever after. Yeah, and then I'll, like, go get... um R-worded and murdered and by the creek, that'll be great. I can't wait to do that. Yeah, I'm just going to do that. I'm going to cause a pain in the ass to these police. That's <laughs> the way that they act. They treat them sometimes, you yeah. know? And the fact that, for example, Tamika wasn't a drug user at all until she developed lupus in her mid-20s and was prescribed Percocet for pain. That's how it starts. Didn't matter to cops, of course, uh, that she just was a junkie. Uh, when she was cut off, eventually she turned to street drugs to feed the addiction beast, and that's all they see. Even if the only person she was hurting directly was herself, she may have as well have been a mass murderer for the level of compassion that she gets shown from some of those guys. I was in Philly, and um, I know it's not Ohio, but it's. they said every single person I spoke to said that they were either on heroin mm-hmm knew someone that died from it or just completely like stone cold quit and it's because there's some like highway where it gets trafficked and people they it starts with like they go to the doctor and they hurt themselves so they prescribe them Vicodin and then after a while you can't afford the Vicodin so then you start doing street drugs and then that's just kind of how it starts well that's funny you bring that up right now because we're gonna go take a trip Ooh. all the way back all the way back to Brooklyn, New York in the early 20th century. Because how did we get to this place? How are these cases all connected? Well, we're going to go back to the good old days of the melting pot of New York. Just giving kids heroin and women postpartum depression. Just oh, not yet. Heroin. Heroin's not there quite yet. Not quite yet. Okay. This does sound like the beginning of a musical, but uh, I don't think this musical would be staged anywhere but hell. So... Two Polish immigrants, a husband and wife, opened a grocery store and started a family. They had three sons, in fact. Those three sons all became psychiatrists. So their family get-togethers must have been absolutely insufferable. Oh, my God, yes. And those three psychiatrists got really into medicine, you see. They were looking for ways to handle those pesky rascals that were overwhelming the nut houses, and the lobotomies were just not working. Ugh. I would have for sure had a forced lobotomy. My my grandmother had a forced lobotomy. They did it to a lot of people. It's definitely yeah. a lot of women. Yeah. They, you know, because women had these crazy ideas like wanting to start a business, you know? Ugh. <laughs> you got to poke, get that, get that brain fixed. So they thought, what if we could stuff them, instead of lobotomies, we could stuff them full of pills that will make their brains go, wee wow, wee wow. And, and la, 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 la. 
And so they did. In 1952, the brothers purchased a pharmaceutical company from a fellow named John Perdue Gray. These brothers, who were named Sackler, worked enslaved and fiddled. And while two of the brothers went to work developing these magic pills, the third brother thought, well, how will we spread the good news to the citizens of this great country? I know, I'll intensively study marketing techniques and I'll teach those people they simply can't live without the Sackler brand drugs. Oh my God, terrifying. And so the people learned and the people bought. Then we're going to go fly way up north to Nova Scotia. Ooh, brr. In the book, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, Dreamland, written by Sam Quinones, I can't figure, I can't find where, how to pronounce it. Q-U-I-N-O-N-E-S. Quinones. Quinones? QAnon. Oh, no. No. <laughs> it does look a little bit like QAnon. From his book, he writes... In 1979, the same year that Herschel Jick up in Boston wrote his letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, a doctor named David Proctor moved into the beige metal-framed building on Biggs Lane in South Shore and called his new clinic Plaza Healthcare. Proctor had come to the South Shore at the behest of Billy Riddle, the town's family doctor. Billy Riddle had been in the South Shore for years. He delivered many of the kids in town and treated every ailment as best he could. He had trouble turning down patients he needed help. Somehow he found Proctor, a Canadian who just completed an internship in Nova Scotia and enticed him to South Shore in 1977. So. As the Sacklers are building up this pharmaceutical empire in the 70s, over here in this other part of the world, South Shore, by the way, is just on the other side of the river that frames Portsmouth. So it's on the Kentucky side of the border. Portsmouth is on the Ohio side. So right as all of that's happening in another land over in, in Sackler land, over here in Ohio... There's a doctor who's been practicing medicine and he can't keep up with the work. So he somehow, and nobody can really seem to track down how or why he found this doctor, but he found David Proctor and he's a Canadian and he asked him to come move to South Shore to help him treat patients. And these are, so I'm just trying to put it all together no, here. So back in the day, there was these Polish immigrants and they had kids and then they were psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. And then so psychiatrists grew up and they were like, we need drugs. Mm -hmm. And then this guy in Ohio, moved to Ohio. No, this is a completely separate okay. group. So this is just happening at the same time. Oh, I see. It's about to meld together. Yes. I see, I see. We're doing two separate places first. Okay. So... We have the Sacklers over here in New York. And then over in Ohio, we have this other guy who then calls in this Canadian guy. They don't know each other yet. Don't worry. They're going to come together. Oh, great. Uh, and the book Dreamland goes on to say... But within two years, Riddle had separated his practice from Proctor's and changed the locks on his doors. Not long after that, in 1979, Billy Riddle died of a heart attack and then only David Proctor remained. Proctor was a talkative and easygoing fellow, but he was flashy in a foreign way to the Ohio River Valley. He wore diamond rings, he wore fur jackets, he drove a Porsche, he dressed like Little Richard or Liberace, said one nurse. That's exactly how I would do, to be fair, to be him. Oh, my God. As, absolutely. I I can't hate on some flair. No. Every time I go home, I'm always like, dressing up. Oh, yeah. Know? And they're just like, Amber, why are you dressing so nice? I'm like, because I like it. Because I'm fucking extra. And unfortunately, in his case, he used that exoticness to sort of hypnotize the people, the, you know, the simple factory workers of Portsmouth. I see. So this local doctor... After he brought this guy in from someday, maybe we'll find out how I've never found how they met each other in the first place. But this doctor he brought in, Proctor's been here for a couple of years and the doctor, the local doctor's like, uh, they had a falling out. Something weird happened. He's like, we're not friends anymore. But Proctor stayed and Billy Riddle died. And so Proctor became the main guy in this little town. Wow. So no more competition. Yeah. Did he really die of a heart attack? Hmm. I don't know. Who knows? But so he was this sort of quirky, eccentric character and people all knew who he was because he wore four coats in this tiny little town. So yeah, he set up shop. So this in the late 70s, early 80s, Portsmouth was uh, already kind of a waning town. It was thriving 
at a different point in time when factories were were more prevalent there. But just like a lot of the Rust Belt towns, the factories left, like you said, Amber. Jobs disappeared. People got poor and unemployment went up. Then people started applying for disability. And this is sort of where Proctor steps in. It became a form of existence for many. To this day, over 22% of Portsmouth's population claims a disability with the government, which is a strikingly high percentage comparable to most cities in the U.S. The median income there is currently at $29,000. This all just makes me so sad. And you could just be like, well, just move. But that requires money and you don't know anybody. And it's like a lot. It's a lot. It's not as easy as just like walking away. No. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Whoa, <gasps> what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <gasps> <gasps> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. So in the early 80s, Proctor was very encouraging of people signing disability paperwork, which, of course, you need a doctor to sign off on to get. In fact, Proctor was known to admit a large number of people to their small hospital psych ward just so he could have a reason to get them on disability. This was a time period when people who were experiencing pain were supposed to be empowered by speaking their truth, i.e. getting pain pills. Uh, The 70s and 80s into the 90s, there was a really big push for medication, and it had a little bit to do with those Sackler boys. I mean, some people do need medicine, absolutely, but are some people manipulating the system or some doctors lying and like getting people on this shit because they make money? Yeah, and absolutely, and we'll talk about that too, but in this case... Proctor was on board with this idea in this tiny little scrap of an American town that was unknown to most humans at this point. He wanted people to stop feeling pain, quote unquote. He probably thought he's doing a good job. I don't know. I don't know (laughs) what his initial motives were, but they definitely became nefarious. So... David Proctor embodied this new attitude and then some. He had a folksy style with a little bit of the evangelist in him. His patients loved him because he had the ability to figure out what that person believed or needed or wanted, said Lisa Roberts, who was in the hospital at the time. He was brilliant in that way, to forensically identify vulnerable people and to figure out what they needed or believed. He would tell them that they had all these things wrong with them. Sounds like a cult leader. Mm -hmm. Proctor was paid in cash at his South Shore clinic. In the mid-1980s, the medical world wrestled with how to use the new opiates that pharmaceutical companies were developing to treat pain. Dr. Proctor was an early and aggressive adapter. He prescribed opiates for the neck, leg, and lower back pain, arthritis, and lower lumbar spine pain. He combined them with benzodiapines, anxiety relievers, of which Valium and Xanax, Proctor's favorite, are best known. So... As this is all happening, the same time, the brothers Sackler have changed their company name from Purdue Frederick Pharmaceutical Company to Purdue Pharma. And boy, were they ever rich, but not rich enough. Oh, my God. In 1996, the Sackler family cooked up the most magical pill of yet. It was called OxyContin. These kind and loving brothers didn't want anyone to feel pain ever again, like ever Ever again. Just like smothering a pillow over your head. Don't feel pain. It's over. The pain will be over soon. Yes. Life should be just a sort of a dreamy haze of collection of smiles where you don't ever feel sad. Even if your body is slowly frying to death lying on the pavement of a Target parking lot in August. You won't even know. Isn't that magical? Oh, my God. It's just sad. And like these people in these depressed towns. Also, what else are you going to do? I know these kind of towns. There's no bowling alley. 
Oh, I mean, you know, there's no skating rink. I mean, even if there is, it, the the prospects are are low. There's not a lot of job growth there. There's not a lot of education. Not a lot of things to do. And, I mean, where I went to high school, heroin was a huge problem. I there multiple people have passed from my school from from drugs. This is so sad. How do um, we get people to like? Well, so as we go. This is now in the 90s. The people clapped and they cheered and they clapped for this new pill, OxyContin. The loudest clapper of all was David Proctor. By this point, his quote unquote pain clinic was popping off. He had, you know, as we said, set up in the 80s. And by 96, he'd already gotten people addicted on a lot of things. But OxyContin was a whole nother level. He's a drug dealer. He's a he's a drug dealer. Oh, he is. There was a lot of disenfranchised people in Southern Ohio and he was their guy. Instead of physical therapy and mental help, these people got pills. Many of them weren't asking for them to start off with. In fact, they just had an ache or an injury that needed looking at. But the diagnosis was pretty much always the same. And luckily for the townspeople of Portsmouth and nearby Chillicothe and Columbus, Canada's Liberace took cash. Seemingly overnight, Portsmouth was filled with the living dead. One of Proctor's victims, and yes, I'm calling them victims as Proctor was doing this to make lots of money, says from that book, Dreamland. You think you're doing stuff the way it's supposed to be done. You're trusting the doctor. After a while, you realize this isn't right, but there really isn't anything you can do about it. You're stuck. You're addicted. What Purdue... Yeah. What I Perd- hate that. Yeah, it sucks. What Purdue had set up is now considered the first American pill mill. A pill mill, by the way, is a technically legal health clinic that doles out mostly pain pills. You can usually tell one by a line of people standing outside of it who look like very sick and who are waiting for hours and hours and hours outside to That's see so somebody. Sad. I know someone who's very beautiful and she would do a lot of pageants. And she said that after one of her pageants, and this is like early 2000s, drug companies would mm-hmm. come to her and say, don't you want to be a pharmaceutical rep? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then she's now a drug dealer. I call them drug dealers, making a lot of money. I mean, this is the something that the Sacklers really brought into America through their their medical marketing. They should be in jail. Oh, they definitely should. <laughs> it's not fun, but they're not. They're very rich. They live in mansions. So suddenly Portsmouth was becoming famous because of Proctor. Proctor's business was so successful that he had to bring other doctors in. Those doctors after a time would go on to open their own pill mills in the surrounding area. Oxycontin was at first marketed as a non-addictive miracle drug, insanely. Something to do with the way the pill is supposed to be time-released instead of one big shot. I remember this coming out in the news and just like, Oxycontin, it's the new wonder drug. And my parents, thank God, they were just like, don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. And I think my dad got like something done with his teeth. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you want some of this Oxycontin? And he said no. And he like dealt with the pain. Yeah, I I remember everybody being like, just take the Oxycontin, Mm -hmm. Earl. And he said, thank God. I don't. Yeah, I've, they've always freaked me. I've had my own drug issues, believe me, but the painkillers have always scared me a lot. So I've never taken one even for after all my dental work and stuff because I'm just like, I don't even want to I don't want to know if I like it. No. I don't want to know. But um, from the book Dreamland. In 1995, the FDA approved Oxycontin for 10, 20 and 40 milligram pills. Later, it added 80 and 160 milligram pills. Despite the high doses of oxycodone loaded into each pill, the FDA brought the idea that by creating fewer surges of euphoria and depression, oxycotton would be less addictive, the holy grail at last. The FDA approved a unique warning label for oxycotton. It allowed Purdue to claim that oxycotton had a lower potential for abuse than other oxycodone products because its time-released formula allowed for a delay of absorbing the drug. No other manufacturer of a Schedule II narcotic ever got the go-ahead from the FDA to make such a claim, Meyer wrote. It was a claim that soon became a cornerstone of the marketing of oxycotton. So basically, this chain of events is that Purdue developed the Oxycontin pill in the 90s, managed to convince the FDA it was not addictive, thus was allowed to give free, was allowed free reign on prescribing it. And this Canadian fucking bastard started handing them out like candy in Southern Ohio. So this is partly from the the 
production of Oxycontin from the Purdue Pharma company. And then partly because this guy in Southern Ohio saw profitability and maybe at first he thought he was helping, but eventually he knew he wasn't. And he just knew that he was making hard cash. Mm. Yeah. When you see people like scratching and begging for more and you know, their leg is healed, you know, the surgery's over with and they're just like, I need a little more. That's when you, you know, you should have like a little angel popping on your shoulder being like, hey. And when you're mostly taking cash for drugs, you know, something's wrong. You know something when it can't be traced back because you're doing cash. Yeah. So and man, did Purdue Pharma ever made fat stacks off of Oxycontin. Once it became clear people were getting deeply, hopelessly addicted to it, instead of being pulled from the market, the good people of Purdue did little fun, they did cartwheels and they did donuts in their newly purchased Lamborghinis. I don't know if they actually had Lambos, <laughs> but I just assume, I imagine they do. If you would like evidence of this, the celebrating out the Lambos, John Oliver coincidentally just did another episode on the opioid crisis in which he discusses the Sacklers, and it includes a very upsetting video of a Purdue conference that involves opera singing, and I think you should just watch it. Thoroughly recommend you check it out. Have you heard about this John Oliver guy? (laughs) He's going to be thrilled to get that someplace underneath bump, so (laughs) you're welcome, Oliver. Uh, Purdue actually was very specifically honing in on Portsmouth and Chillicothe. In the late 90s, as Proctor was really picking up steam, their salesmen from Purdue would come into town and they would wine dine 69 all the doctors. I imagine they 69 them and assure them if they wanted an answer to their patient's pain, this was it. One Southern Ohio. See, this is probably sort of what that person, you know, would be part of in the process of. They intentionally want very beautiful, poised women because you wouldn't look at them and think, oh, they're drug dealers, which they are. Yeah. And yeah. and so they they would they would bring you know beautiful people in they would bring professionals in and they would pay for these fancy dinners to doctors, and uh, and it makes sense. Oh, sorry, going back to like how people were psychiatrists because I was in middle of America in a hotel room watching TV, and it was the commercials. I'm always fascinated by the local commercials because mm-hmm. it was so blatantly. It was a pizza commercial just dumping pizza and ranch, and then it was a diet pill. <laughs> Commercial. <laughs> just over and over again, making people <sighs> sick and then buying, like giving them the medicine. And then like Diet Coke. Yeah. It is so blatantly doing it. But I guess if you're indoctrinated in it and you're in these towns. If that's all you see. That's all you see. That's all for you sure. know. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like that's how I grew up, you yeah. know? And then here comes this beautiful person with a fur coat saying, take these pills, you'll be fine. They and look then, ha- happy they, and healthy and rich. And, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. You start feeling fine. And you're like, all right, I need more of those pills. Man, I feel great. And then I feel terrible. I need more of that. Yeah. Exactly. So once other Ohio doctor remembers them coming to his hospital six times in 1997. So one one of the doctors who was nearby where um, Proctor was serving drugs, they were coming at all the hospitals in the area. And this doctor said, yeah, Purdue came six separate times to try to convince us to take all these Oxycontin prescriptions. So... Many of the docs were hesitant because they knew the dangers of narcotics from medical school. But the doctors like Proctor were like, hell yeah, I'll sell these babies for cash. What am I, a freaking idiot? And he wasn't a freaking idiot. He He was a freaking bad person. But, (laughs) but the, like, the other doctors were also giving these drugs out. They just weren't at the level of pill mill giving out the drugs. But there, I mean, obviously Oxycontin was prescribed and it still is to a lot of people. Yeah. So because they make money when they hand them out. Uh-huh. The pharmacists oh, make yeah. money. Everybody's making money on oh, the yeah. backs of people that are dying. Yeah. The doctors were all getting kickbacks for this. So kill them all. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still happening. Even if it's not with specifically Oxycontin doctors, still this still happens. But what Purdue and Proctor and the other pill doctors weren't expressly saying to their patients was what, that, what they were receiving was a medication that was nearly identical to heroin. By the early 2000s, Purdue was making a billion dollars a year in oxy sales, and the Midwest was being ravaged. They were so easy to get that many people were up to 300 milligrams a day, which is essentially the same thing as shooting up a syringe of heroin. Proctor, in many ways, was also spiraling through this madness and was progressively becoming more corrupt the more money he was making, and probably he was imbibing a little bit on drugs, too. Oh, yeah. Um, 
I bet the parties at his house were fun, though. I bet it was just probably like, I'm picturing like a naked girl and she's in the corner just writhing and then people probably killing people for fun. Perhaps. I don't know who he would invite because most people were now impoverished where he was, but he had a mansion, um, which is now ironically, it was turned into a drug treatment center. His mansion after he was arrested, they turned it into a rehab, which is pretty funny. It's fun trolling. So the rumors began to swirl around and it became clear that he was exchanging pills for sex to some of the addicted women oh my God. who came in broke and who were in withdrawal and they desperately needed it. I need these pills. So the doctors that Proctor had brought earlier on had turned out, we find during this time as well, just within a few a couple years, people are already starting to question what's going on here. And it turns out all the doctors he had invited had spotty histories. They had drug issues, mental issues, low grades in medical school, et cetera. People basically willing to make a profit off of their doctor degree. Don't trust doctors. I'm just kidding. No, no. <laughs> trust some doctors. But, yes, you but know, also just yeah. like, you know, don't I, I hate the term do your own research because now that basically is synonymous with look on the internet until you find what you want the internet yeah. to say because somebody will have said it. But, you know, just try to learn about scientifically studied, peer-reviewed things about the medicine yeah. that you're taking. Get a second opinion. For sure. Always go to another from doctor. From another doctor. From a different doctor. <laughs> not and, from Facebook. Not from Facebook. And if you're ever in, like, you can even be in the middle of an operating table. And if you're just like, I don't like this dude, you can get up and leave. Absolutely. They, they can't physically restrain you. No, no, for sure. Because, of course, we as we come to see in many of these stories, there are corrupt doctors because doctors are people and yeah. people are corrupt. So... This is what was happening down here. In just a few years, oxy addiction had exploded. The DEA had caught wind of Proctor's doings, and by 2003, Proctor was running. He was trying to flee the country to avoid uh, getting charged with anything, and he was caught at the border of Canada, where he and a woman who was not his wife uh, were going to. They had tickets to fly to some other country to like try to avoid prosecution. He is currently, however, in prison because he was caught. Okay, good. Yeah. The next decade, for the next decade, that is, up until current day, there are doctors still being sentenced and imprisoned for what they did, which is pill mill, pill milling. Um, that's still kind of happening. People were charged, you know, through the 2010s. There was a lot of doctors who spawned from Proctor's business model because he became very rich from it. Unfortunately, it was at the expense of vulnerable people, and many, many people died as a direct result of these prescriptions. So why am I talking about all this? Well, beyond the fact that pills are still a scourge in Ohio and elsewhere, when the feds, quote unquote, cracked down on these pill mills, they took the doctors away and they took the majority of the pills away. But what they left behind was wreckage. They left behind a generation of broken people, and that doesn't simply disappear it can, in fact, just continue to spread to their children and to yeah. the town itself. Now you have PTSD, people raising people, giving them more PTSD. It's generational. And people completely addicted yeah. to Oxycontin, which then turns into heroin. Because when you're, it, it attacks a part of your brain that makes you think that it's survivalist. So when you're going through withdrawals of heroin or Oxycontin, your brain thinks that you need it like you need to breathe. Yeah, I'm going to die unless yeah. I get it. So they took the doctors away, but then they had all these, I mean, thousands of people who had these like debilitating addictions and no no resources. So now whole swatches of Portsmouth, Chillicothe, and Columbus are filled with burned out buildings, addicted men and women, and nowhere to turn but heroin. Oh my God, this is so sad. Where there are addicted women there is sex trafficking. And where there is sex trafficking, there are missing women. So next week, we're going to get more into the stories of these women who have disappeared and who or what may be specifically directly responsible. I bet it's a lot more women than we think. It's For more sure. than these 11. Absolutely. I'd like to add, by the way, like you touched on earlier, Amber, that I want everyone to know that I am personally not disparaging anyone who takes prescription medication. I take 200 milligrams of Zoloft a day, and that combined with therapy it changed my adult life like it changed yeah i had never felt what it was to just start at like 
sea level. I always had to dig out of a hole for much of my adult life. So yeah, depression is real. Mental health is real. For sure. Take care of yourself. But if you have a doctor pushing like prescribed meth on you, that's a little different. Right. So I am not, I'm not calling anybody who takes prescription drugs weak by any stretch of the imagination. I know that there are people out there, whether they want to or not, they need to take pain meds to function, even if it's for temporary reasons. Yeah. Some people have like chronic pain issues. They need it. That they can't, they cannot stop. They can't change it. So my finger is pointing directly at those who made the billions on the destruction of the working class community of our country. I'm looking at at the mansions that Proctor has because not because people need medication, but because they turned it into a profit making business, yeah. which is still a problem that, you know, that floods our country. We are run by pharmaceutical companies who have taken advantage of the fact that people do need medication for certain things. Yeah, some people need Oxycontin. Medical marketing shouldn't even exist. It should be a non-sexy thing that you do to take care of yourself, but that's not where we stand right now. And if you look at the photos, you lay the photos of the mansions that was owned for one by Proctor and then the multiple, multiple properties owned by the Purdue family, or the Sackler family that is, and then you cross compare them to the neighborhoods that have been left in you know, Portsmouth and these towns, it's it's quite stark. It's ravaging people and it's psychologically ravaging. They know how to, because they know that some people need this. So they know, and it, it does feel good. Like if I got my foot broken and the doctor said, um, take these pills, it'll make it go away. Mm-hmm. And then when my foot heals, I'm going to want to keep taking the pills. It's going to make me feel good. Right. And, and if and, you did get off of them, you feel like you're going to die. Yeah. And like one of the gentlemen mentioned in that in the book, Dreamland, you go in, you expect, you tr- you're supposed to trust what your doctor says. And a lot of those people went in just trying to relieve some pain. They didn't want to be on drugs. And instead of offering any sort of other thing that could have probably, instead of just treating a pain, might have healed it, like physical therapy, made it so that you didn't live in chronic pain. They were just like, here's a mask over your chronic pain forever because I want you to keep paying these for these pills for the rest of your life. Yeah, because if you just did a therapy that healed them forever, will you- Not making any money, baby. After a while, you stop making the money. Exactly. So while there are like definitely real reasons to need to be on pain meds for certain things, a lot of those things that people were thrown on pills for could have been treated in other ways if there were people who were, you know, properly equipped- to give you diagnoses down there. And there just wasn't there. Yeah, I was talking to somebody in Philly who was like, my buddy was a football player. He had a football accident and the doctors just pumped him full of drugs and then kept pumping him full of drugs even when his body healed. Mm -hmm. And then he, after a while, couldn't afford the Oxycontin. So he started doing heroin and then he he fucking died. Like maybe two years after his football injury. Yeah. It's quick. Yeah, it gets you really fast. And it is a it is a thing that happens actually a lot with sports people that because they don't care, they they don't teach them proactive ways to treat injuries. They just want to use their bodies up. Same thing with like gymnast dancers, everybody. It's why I'm very much an advocate of, you know, physical education, uh, teaching yourself about anatomy, physiology. Uh, that's how you can train in contortion and, and be able to bend your body when you're old is like, you have to understand it from an internal level because there will be people in the, in the, these communities who will just be like, yeah, here's some pills, which will fuck you up. It will not fix you. It's not healing you at all. It's actually doing, it's degrading your body more. Mm. But again, not talking about people who need to take pain pills in general, just there are cases like this, like you just said with the football player, that guy probably would have been better served by getting some strength treatment, some physical therapy, taking, you know, ibuprofen, things like that. But, you know, where's the cash in that? No. That's what I'm asking. No, we need those Illuminati parties. Yeah, we do. Um, so there was a few, quite a few rants today, but... There was... I uh, hopefully you could find something interesting within those rants. Uh, we're going to go back to this, obviously, for part two next week. Thank you guys for letting us take a little a week of a snooze off. And uh, yeah, we'll be back with this next Wednesday. You can follow us at someplace underneath on Instagram and TikTok and me at The Natty Jean. 
Amber Smelson all across the board on social media. Hell yeah. You have uh, Amber and Natalie here, saucy and purred as always. Signing out. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit. Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. <laughs>